Well, this morning we're going to continue our uh, series on law and grace, which is a mini-series inside our series on introduction to the Old Testament. It is very important when you study the Old Testament to understand just how the Old Testament applies, why it applies, what applies and what doesn't apply. And so we have purposely tackled some of the hardest issues um, that can be addressed from the Old Testament. Um, most pastors don't like to do this. They, you, you get to a series like this and it's so complicated that you don't even know what you believe. And so it's hard to tell other people what they should believe if you don't know what you believe. And so um, I'm doing my best. This has always been kind of a little hobby of mine to try and explain to you some of the key elements. And again, not everything. This could go on for a long time. But we last week we looked at law, specifically the law of Moses. The week before that, we looked at what law is in general. Then we looked at the law of Moses and we discovered that we are not under the law of Moses. And we begin to realize that um, the law of Moses does play a part in the lives of believers. And you ask yourself, well, how? And uh, this is a question we're trying to figure out. Just how does the Old Testament, which was governed by the law, and the rest of the Old Testament, which is maybe not law in and of itself, but um, just you know, narrative and poetry, how does that apply to believers today? Um, New Testament believers living in an age of grace or living under grace, as the New Testament says. Well, let's just talk about what we know so far. We know that the law of Moses, with all its commands and regulations, were based off of two great commands, the commands to love God and love one's neighbor. Actually, the command to love one's neighbor is similar to the command to love God because God commands us to love our neighbor, and when we love our neighbor, we're loving God. Remember what Jesus said um, in, uh, when he spoke to those uh, right after in the parable of um, of the sheep and the goats, and, and he said, you know, well, when did we see you hungry, and when did we feed you, and when did we do all these things? And he said, what? To the degree that you did it to the least of these brethren of mine, you did it to me. So we actually love God by loving other people. That's why love is the fulfillment of the law. But all the laws in both the Old and New Testament can all come under those two commands to love God and love one's neighbor. We also know that the two great commandments still apply to Christians today. We're still supposed to love God and we're still supposed to love our neighbor. We also know that the Ten Commandments found in the Law of Moses were based off of those two commandments and all the other commandments, of course, came from the Ten, which came from the Two. And in the New Testament, all uh, the Ten Commandments save the commandment to keep Holy, the Sabbath day is repeated. It could be argued, though, that um, even the the fourth commandment, the the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy, is still fulfilled in a spiritual way because the author of Hebrews says that we who believe in Christ enter into a permanent state of rest that was pictured by the Sabbath day. It's in Hebrews chapter four, verse three, and actually the context from three seven to four thirteen. So there is this um, repetition of some of the same laws. Not only do we have the same foundational laws, but some of the same principles repeated and regulations repeated in both the Old and New Testament. And this is 
what has confused people. We know that all scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is either either directly applies or in principle applies to us because we know that it is all profitable to teach us things, to train us and equip us for righteousness, to build perseverance and proven character and hope in us. And and all of those things, uh, all those attributes of godliness come from all the scriptures, not just some. Not all the scriptures excluding the law of Moses, but all the scriptures. We know that the law of Moses is a law system or a law code that is no longer functioning. As New Testament believers, we are not under the law of Moses. We learned that last week rather definitively. The church is not under the law of Moses. And what that means is we are not under the binding regulations of the law of Moses as a law system. But the confusion is this. The New Testament has a new law system and a new law code. And there is overlap between the law of Moses and the New Testament law system. For instance, the Old Testament says that we can't murder people. And the New Testament says the same thing. So... When we're studying the Old Testament, if we come upon a text that says, Thou shalt not murder, we can say that applies. How do we know that? Because that is one of the same laws that's in our New Testament law system. So even though we are not under the law code of Moses, there is this overlap. So sometimes the commands found there directly apply, but it's not because... We are under that law system. It's because both law systems are founded on the same basic laws and there is this overlap because of that. Now, all of this is good and fine. We can say, okay, all the scriptures, every bit of the scriptures, even the law of Moses, apply to us at least in principle, if not directly. Some things do not apply at all because the New Testament tells us that. But there are these timeless truths and these timeless principles contained in all the Word of God, including the Law of Moses. We're going to see this in this morning in a little bit. But this morning we want to look at the New Testament law system. What is the New Testament law system that you are under? Now, just saying that is scary to some people. Because in your mind, you're thinking, warning, we are not under law. We are under grace. The problem with that is, is when you look at the New Testament, we find things that tell us we have to do things And not do things. Abstain from immorality. We have general statements like Paul's statement. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Or John's statement in 1 John. You know. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Every single do and don't in the New Testament is a law. A regulation. A command. And we have to obey those. But some people, when they come to those sections of Scripture that say we are not under law, what they think those texts say is we are not under any law. And this is the problem. 
They assume that law is used universally. But remember what we already learned? That when the New Testament uses law, it almost always refers to the law of Moses unless the context says otherwise. So in Romans and Galatians, when Paul is saying we are not under the law, we're not under the law, we're not under the law, he is not saying we are not under any law. He is saying we are not under the law of Moses, not under the law of Moses, not under the law of Moses. And so that's what we need to keep in our mind. But the question is, what law system are we under? What is it called? And what are its regulations and commandments and statutes? And so that's what we're going to begin to look at this morning. And the place where we want to start is, is in some promises made to Israel. Specifically, the promise of a new covenant. And so I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. He was the prophet that God sent to Israel immediately before and during their being taken captive to Babylon. And so he had to witness um, their last days of existence in the land before they were taken captive. Now what we're going to do is look at Jeremiah 31 Verses 31 through 34. Here are these people. They're in the history of Israel where they have gone through all the kings. They've gone through all the trials. All the prophets have come. They've been living under the law of Moses and failing to obey it miserably. They've been worshiping idols over and over through hundreds of years. They've been failing to obey God. And finally, the curses have built up against them. And now God is going to fulfill his promise to them. And he is going to bring upon them the curses of the law. And he is going to take them captive. Now, When we're talking about covenants here, before we look at the text, I want you to understand what we're talking about. When I say covenant, I mean an agreement between two parties. Now, covenants in the Old Testament are usually of two kinds. There is bilateral covenants, by meaning two, covenants made between two parties, and unilateral covenants, covenants made between two. One party, no, between, made by one party. Now, a bilateral covenant is like the covenant that God made with the people of Israel when they were camped at Mount Sinai. You remember what happened? They delivered them from the Egypt, went through the Red Sea and all that stuff. And they were camped there and God said, how about you be my people and I'll be your God. You know, I just rescued you from oppression. I've showed you all these miracles. You can keep my commandments I will be your God and I will bless you as you keep my commandments. If you fail, I will curse you. How about it? The people say, okay, we'll do it. You be our God, we'll be your people. And the whole nation enters into this covenant with God. That is what the old covenant is when I talk about the old covenant. Now, there are some places in the Old Testament where unilateral covenants are made. For instance, when God promised to Abraham that he would be blessed and and through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed and they'd have the blessing of the promised land and all of that. Abraham was sleeping when God made that covenant. 
I mean, he didn't, you know, enter into, okay, well, I'll do this. I mean, God put him to sleep. So God is the only binding party. And since God is perfectly faithful, we know that covenants that are unilateral covenants made by God, those covenants always come to pass, such as the covenant given to David in 2 Samuel, in 1 Chronicles. The promise that he would have a descendant to sit on the throne that would rule and reign over the house of Israel forever and ever, unilateral covenant. God making a covenant with himself to do something. But in this case, Israel had this covenant that they had to obey to get the blessings. They disobeyed, they get the cursings. And so they received the law, made the covenant, and didn't obey. So Jeremiah is like one of the last prophets at the end before they get kicked out into Babylon. But as they, this is coming upon them, God encourages the people of Israel because he's going to promise a new covenant. And this is what this is about. Let's see what the text says. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Notice this text promises a new covenant that is unlike the old covenant. A new covenant with a new law system. And this covenant was promised to the people of Israel. That God would be putting his law within them, that he would write it on their hearts, that he would be their God, that they would be his people, that God's people would know him, and that God would forgive their sin and remember it no more. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like being a believer today? Yes, it does, doesn't it? Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Jeremiah was the prophet who was around right before they were taken captive to Babylon. Well, Ezekiel is the prophet while they are captive in Babylon. Ezekiel writes to the people of Israel while they are in Babylon, held captive during that 70-year period. And Ezekiel gives them this great section talking about how God is going to restore his people. How he is going to bring them back and restore them in the land under the righteous reign of the Messiah. 
And this is just a section out of the overall promise of restoration. And let me read it to you, starting in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now just stop there, the end of verse 23. Look at what God's saying here. You know, a lot of times you can think to yourself that God exists to make you happy. That God exists because you need things and he's there to give it to you. He's the cosmic vending machine. He is what you... This endless resource, and if you pray and badger him enough, he's going to spit out what you want. If you don't get what you want, God's not good to you. And a lot of people have this idea that God is, is there to please them and make them happy. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. God is exists to make him happy. First and foremost. Notice he says here over and over again, listen. I'm going to act for my holy name, for my holiness, to vindicate my name that you profaned. You have totally slaughtered my reputation among the nations. You're supposed to be my people. You're supposed to keep my commandments. I'm supposed to bless you. All the nations are supposed to look and go, wow, look how blessed Israel is. And what have you done? You've worshipped idols. You've forced me to curse you and curse you and curse you. And now you're in captivity. You have profaned my name among the nations. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to vindicate my name. I am going to go back and I am going to make sure the nations know that I am a good God, a holy God, and a just God. And I am going to do it by making a new covenant with you. And this is what he says. Look at verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. You see who's doing things in there? God is doing it. God's doing everything. 
He brings them back. He restores them. He saves them. He puts his law in their heart. He gives them a new spirit. He causes them to walk in his way. Both in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel, it speaks of this incredible divine enablement, an extra measure of divine enablement to obey God and walk in his commandments, his ordinances mentioned here. Notice, it is not a salvation, a new covenant unto rebellion, but a new covenant that enables the believer to walk according to God's word. God would restore them, vindicate his holiness, show his glory to the nations, gather Israel, wash away their sins, give them a new heart, put his spirit within them, cause them to walk in his way, cause them to be his people, and he would be their God. And then the text continues to explain all these other things God would do for them. But notice what we have in this text is a description of a transformed believer in Jesus Christ, don't we? I mean, this is what happens to us when we're saved, right? We become regenerated. That means we become changed. We become a new creature. Uh, We believe the Holy Spirit enters into our life. We are forgiven. We are transformed. We have a different worldview. We start thinking differently. We love different things. We become different, radically different. And we receive divine enablement to obey God in every way. Now, the problem is, is we are not Israel. And this promise was made to Israel. And you can ask yourself, well, how can you say that this promise to Israel, which obviously has not been all the way fulfilled yet, they haven't been brought back to the land and not every one of them are worshiping the Lord now, which won't happen till the kingdom, but how could, how could this be fulfilled yet? Well, it's not all the way fulfilled. You say, what about the Gentiles? What about the church? Does the new covenant relate to us in part or in whole? Well, we learned last week from Galatians chapter 3 verses 6 through 9 that when we believe in Christ who is the son of Abraham, we are able to receive the blessings that that a son of Abraham would receive, even though we're Gentiles. By faith, Paul says, we are sons of Abraham. Well, by faith, if we're sons of Abraham, then we not only get the promises to Abraham, we get the promises to the nation of Israel. We get, as Paul says in Romans, we get to be grafted into the natural rootstock so we can benefit from that because we are in Christ and he is the son of Abraham. Now, this new covenant which was promised to Israel, we get to get in on. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 22? Verse 20, when he was talking about the Lord's Supper and he was instituting the Lord's Supper for the first time, do you remember what happened when he lifted up the cup? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He was speaking of the new covenant that 
was predicted in the Old Testament. He was saying, I am going to inaugurate or institute the new covenant in my death. Paul, speaking to the Gentile Christians in Corinth, quoted the same thing to them concerning the Lord's Supper. A new covenant which contains a new law system. Paul described himself in 2 Corinthians 3.6 as the servant of the new covenant. We'll look at that in a little bit. In a little bit. In Hebrews 8.13, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews explains how the old covenant has passed away. And in chapter 9, verse 15, how Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Through his death on the cross. The new covenant pr- promises life lived under grace. And under a new law system. Now what does it mean to live under grace? We need to talk about this because most people don't know. Under grace, let's talk about grace first. Then we'll go back and remind ourselves what being under something means. And then we'll talk about what being under grace does not mean. And hopefully we'll have an understanding then. What is grace? Well, grace, a simple definition is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Now you're thinking, okay, well that's kind of a dry theological term. Can you kind of give us uh, something a little more tangible? Let's say you came by my office this week, and you don't have to do this, but you come by my office and... uh, and you come by and say, you know, hi, how's it going? Just saying hi, say great. I say, hey, I got something for you. Yeah, and this little envelope here, there's a little registration and some keys to a brand new Lexus. Now, believe me, don't come by. This is not going to happen. This is hypothetical. So you say to yourself, whoa, this is great. I say, what do you mean you're giving this to me? I said, well, I'm just going to decide to give this. Well, I didn't deserve this. Yeah. I didn't even earn this. No. Why are you giving me something so valuable if, if I didn't even do anything for it? This is a gift of grace. Undeserved. Unearned. You get to have it. Period. Because I want to give it to you. That is what grace is. It's when we are undeserving and God gives us things we don't deserve. Very valuable things. Incredibly valuable things. And we don't deserve them. And it's a wonder. Why does he do that? Well, in theology, when you study God and you study his attributes, you discover that there is a general category in theology called the goodness of God. And underneath that category are things like grace and mercy and compassion and love and long-suffering and blah, 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 all the way down. The overall arching category is the goodness of God and all of these other little attributes come under the general category of God's goodness. Now a lot of people though get grace confused with mercy. The reason is is the Bible says we're saved by grace but the Bible says we're also saved by mercy. So they think in their head well maybe we're saved by grace which is mercy but it's not. Mercy is To withhold what is due us. Grace is to receive what is not due us. 
Both of them are undeserved. Both of them are unearned. Both of them come under the category of God's goodness. Mercy holds back the wrath of God, which we deserve. Grace gives us things, gifts, whatever, that we don't deserve. We are saved by both God holding back his wrath and by God giving us things we don't deserve. That's what grace is. Now, we learned that being under law meant being under the obligation or responsibility to obey the things in the law. That's what being under law is, being responsible to obey, right? That if you are under the law of Moses, you're responsible to obey all the commands in the law of Moses and to submit to all the regulations and ordinances and statutes there. So, if grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God given to unworthy sinners, then being under grace is to live under the responsibility of appropriating those gracious gifts God has given to us in our life. That's what living under grace means. For instance, we are to live by the word of God. That is an undeserved gift. We are to walk by the Spirit and rely on the Spirit's power to help us obey God. That is undeserved. We are to use our spiritual gifts. Those are undeserved gifts of grace. We are to fellowship with other believers who are to minister to us with their spiritual gifts. Again, we don't even deserve to fellowship, let alone be blessed by other people and their spiritual gifts. You see, living under grace is to live in a way that we are constantly relying upon the gracious provisions of God in our life. That's what living under grace is. Being under grace means being saved by the blood of Christ. Having all our sins atoned for. It means being justified and sanctified. It means that we are saved because of what Christ did, and that our salvation is secure. Being under grace or living under grace means that Christ took the curse of the law upon himself and that that curse is not going to come upon you and that you, when you sin, even though God gives you what you need not to sin, you still have complete forgiveness and you don't lose your salvation. You are saved by grace and you are sanctified by grace. We are under grace in that we are able to participate in the blessings of the new covenant now and in the future. That we get given to us Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect law keeping, so to speak. That is given to us so that we don't have to worry anymore about being right before God because we have perfect righteousness applied to us in Christ. Practically, we're still sinners. Practically, we're still pressing on towards the mark. But in Christ, we are perfect and without blame. Being under grace does not mean it does not mean that before Christ came, God didn't extend grace. We have already learned that is false. 
It does not mean that God saved Old Testament believers by grace and then abandoned them to walk in the flesh the rest of their lives. Being under grace does not mean that Christians can live lawless lives of rebellion and sin. Being under grace is not being under an easier law system or a less stringent law system or under no law system at all. It is to have divine enablement to obey every command of God in the new covenant law system. As a believer, you have all the resources you need to say yes to everything God tells you to do. The ability to obey God perfectly. Think about that sometime. You ever think about that? I mean, does the devil make you do it? Does that irritating person at work make you sin? Oh, sometimes you say, you made me so mad. No, no, they did not. You chose to be mad. Oh, that person just makes me depressed. No, they don't. You make you depressed. Each one is tempted and carried away and enticed by their own lusts. No one makes you sin. You make you sin. Now, listen. You talk to people and they say, well, you know, I just can't help it. Well, you can't help it if you aren't a believer. But if you are a believer, you can't help it. Why? Because you are under grace and God's grace is sufficient. Do you remember what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says right after it gives that huge list of all the sins that Israel fell into? And, you know, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Then he gives this little statement here. No temptation has overcome you but such is common to man. Right? And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Did you hear that? God has promised you to not let you ever be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, God will provide for you a way of escape so that you can endure under it. Every single thing you need to obey God perfectly has been given to you in Christ because you are under grace. Under grace does not mean lawlessness. It means having all the divine enablement you need to obey God perfectly. This is incredible. And if you fail, which we do frequently, there's forgiveness in Christ and no curse because he took the curse of the law upon himself. That's what it means to be under grace. Being under grace is to walk in the Spirit and rely on God's resources. You know, have you, does it ever confuse you when people talk about, well, it's not me? You know, somebody comes up to me and says, Jack, great sermon. Oh, that wasn't me. Well, I could have sworn that was you up there. Well, it was me, but it was not me, it was God. Well, which one was it? So it's, a, a, it's like the, the, I like the man who tried to use the opposite side of that. He got caught robbing a bank. And when he stood before the judge and the judge said, well, what, what is your plea? And he says, well, I'm innocent and guilty. And let me explain, your honor. He says, I'm guilty because inside of me I have this sin nature. And uh, this sin nature compelled me to rob the bank but your honor i'm also a christian and i have this new heart and this new life in christ and 
I just want you to know that my, my new nature, it didn't want to rob the bank. So the judge says, well, I'll have to give you 30 years in prison, even though the maximum sentence is 15 years, 15 for your old nature and 15 for your new nature for being an accomplice. And see, what happens is, is a lot of times when we talk about living in Christ and we say things like, well, well, you know, God did this. Well, was it you or was it God? Well, let's look at some scriptures. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. This is a great, great text. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. At our house, this is called the Popeye verse. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. What was that? You see what he said there? He says, I want you to know, I labored more than all of them, but not I, but the grace of God within me. What is he talking about? Well, was it you, Paul, or was it God? Yes. It was Paul, the Apostle Paul willingly and purposely Relying on God's gracious provisions to obey God diligently. You see, I can help an old lady across the street and someone else can help an old lady across the street and we can both do the same work. And from the outside it looks exactly the same. But if this person is doing it for the glory of God to be a servant and to show love, And I'm doing it because I'm hoping somebody watches. I have not done anything that has pleased God, though this person has. If I am trusting in my strength and my wisdom and my ingenuity, and I'm not constantly in prayer asking God for help, if I don't have my sins confessed, I am in the flesh. And I am not living Under the grace that God supplies, I am living in my own wretched flesh. But if I am trusting in God's word, if I am relying on God in prayer, if I am using my spiritual gifts in a way that God wants me to and taking all the resources that God has given me and applying them and trusting in them and living my life, I labor more than them all, but yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Salvation by grace and sanctification is by grace. Both salvation, the process of being saved, and sanctification, the process of growing in godliness, is by grace. You see, a lot of people get this confused because they think, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. And what that means is I just lay on the couch and wait for God to levitate me. You know, to make me go do things. You know, I don't know. Well, it's not, it's not I. You know, I'll just relax and just say, God, just take me away. 
But you have to make an effort to apply the resources God has given you. And that's what it means to live by grace. It doesn't mean just apathy. It means diligently laboring to do God's will. So keep that in mind. Paul told the Philippians... In Philippians, it, they had a problem with disunity, and there was—I think there's some women, you know, who were bickering, and there was contention going on. And he was trying to get them to get their act together. And he says this in Philippians two thirteen: "For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." First, he says, "I want you to work out your problem." Then he says, because it is God who is at work in you. Not just you, not just God, but God working in you, relying on him and his grace. For the Christian, living under grace means living your life by the grace which God supplies. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is a text that we just mentioned briefly, and that's why we're going to look at it more carefully now. Paul here is defending in this book his right to be an apostle and and how he is a minister of the new covenant. And look at what he says here. In verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 3, Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, Not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Now that sounds pretty laying on the couch, doesn't it? But our adequacy is from God. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills But the Spirit gives life. Paul here is contrasting the old life of living under the law of Moses so that they could be saved or so that they could please God or, you know, you just, you this, this, um, this, uh, wrote mechanical obedience, not from the heart, not out of love for God, not relying on the gracious provisions of God, but this letterism that he knew very well as a Pharisee. And he's contrasting that with the new covenant life, a life lived in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, relying on the gracious provisions that God has given us as New Testament believers. Paul understood what it meant to live by grace, that his adequacy was not in his self, in his flesh, in his intellect. It was in God's gracious provisions given to him. And as long as he appropriated those provisions, then all he could say is, I'm going to give the glory to God because he's the one who gave me my spiritual gifts. He's the one who gave me life. He's the one who gave me strength. He's the one I prayed to. He's the one I did this. He's the one who gave me direction in his word. And see, this is what God wants. He wants you always relying upon his gracious provisions so that you don't take the credit. But all the credit goes to who? It goes to him. It goes to him. In the old covenant system and the law of Moses If men failed to obey, the curses would come upon them. But now, 
Christ has taken those curses away. In the new covenant, we have all the resources to obey God in every way he wants us to obey. Now, in spite of all that we have learned from the word of God about the subject, about law, how we still need to obey, that sin is lawlessness, obedience is law keeping, that all these commands in the, in the New Testament we have to keep. We don't just say, well, I don't have to obey that. Some people will still say we are not under law, any law. We are only under grace. That, that causes huge problems. Usually they, they believe that because when they read law, they don't understand it as the law of Moses. They understand it as law in general. And remember, that's why I told you at the beginning, when you're reading the New Testament and you come upon the word law, assume that it's talking about the law of Moses. Because if you don't, and we aren't under any law, then why does the Bible say to keep God's commandments? To obey Christ. To do all those things mentioned in the New Testament that we have to do or not do. You see, this is the problem. There is huge conflict. But we can solve it by just looking at the Word of God. Some who try to think that we are not under any law at all try to promote this let go and let God um, sensing type of Christianity where, you know, I'm not under law. I just kind of cruise through life. And whenever I kind of sense God is, you know, tweaking me, I just do it. You know, I just like, I really feel I should probably do this. Okay, I'm going to go do it. You know, I should really go witness to that guy. I just kind of feel that's the right thing to do. God's spirit moves me. Listen, that's pagan. That's mysticism. That's not Christianity. Christians walk by the word of God and do what the word of God says. They don't live by their feelings and their emotions to give them direction. But the New Testament does teach that we are not only under grace, but while we are under grace, we are under a new law system. And let's look at that right now. Let's look at the definition of this new law system. You go through the New Testament, you will discover... In several places, this new law system mentioned, and it's called several different things. We're just going to look at one of the definitions today, and then next week we'll pick up. But this new law system appears over and over. And just because we're under law in the New Testament does not mean we are not under grace anymore. Don't think they are mutually exclusive. It is true we are not under the law of Moses but we are still under law. And to show you that, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Actually, we'll survey just a few things in 8, just talk about it briefly, and then look at a couple things in 9, and then we'll end up in verses 19 through 21. But I just want to give you some context here so you understand the flow of this passage. In chapter 8 and 9, Paul is talking about our liberties in Christ, since we are not under the law of Moses. Paul used to be um, one under the law of Moses. You know, he couldn't eat ham sandwiches. But now he can eat ham sandwiches and shrimp and lobster dipped in butter and things like that, which before, under the law of Moses, he could not partake of. And so in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, he is explaining how, how this freedom that he has is a freedom that all New Testament believers have, but 
They have to be careful not to use it in a way that causes somebody else to stumble. In other words, as a Jew, he would not go over to a Jew still under the law and say, hey, how about a ham sandwich? Because that would offend them. And then his liberty would be used in the wrong way because it would actually hinder his ability to witness to this person who needed Christ. So in chapter 8, that's what he says. We have liberties, but we aren't going to use them in a way that causes other people to stumble. Now, in the beginning of chapter 9, Paul continues to defend his right to exercise his liberties. And he says, listen, don't I have a right to eat and drink? Sure he does. Can I eat and drink anything I want? Sure. And then he goes on to say, don't I have a right to be married? Sure. Can't I take along a believing wife like the apostle Peter? Which is really hard in the Pope doctrine. And the right to be supported by the ministry? Sure. Look at verse 8. Of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is now going to defend his right to be supported by the ministry. And what does he quote? But the law of Moses. He says this. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment. Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses. Now he says listen. I'm not saying these things. God is saying these things and let me tell you what God said in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is thrashing. Then he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now this is very interesting. Paul knew he wasn't under the law. Paul is the advocate of not being under the law of Moses. He says over and over again in Romans and Galatians, we aren't under the law of Moses. And so when he wants to prove a doctrine, when he wants to show a truth, what does he do? He goes to the law of Moses. You're thinking, help me. But remember what we learned, that just because we are not under the law of Moses does not mean that the law of Moses can't teach us anything. What he does is, is he takes a principle out of the law of Moses. And if you were here for our stewardship series, you remember what that principle was, right? The principle taught in this text, found in the law of Moses, is this. Those things that benefit you should be supported by you. That's basically what that text is saying, except when it comes to cell phones. The text is saying, if you receive benefit from something, you should support that something. If it's an ox and the ox is plowing your field and threshing your grain or whatever, you have the responsibility to feed the ox and not muzzle it while it's threshing your grain. That's only logical. Why would you starve an animal that's doing work for you? In the same way, you come to church. You benefit from the teaching and the worship and the facilities and the programs. Is it not right for you to support that? Sure, that's all he's saying. We have liberties and those liberties allow us to be supported by the ministry. But he didn't always take that liberty. Just like he didn't always take the liberty he had to eat a ham sandwich. 
Why? Well, he says he didn't take the liberty, as he goes on to explain in the text, to be supported by the ministry because he was doing evangelism. For instance, you go into a town. Remember, Paul's the pioneer. He's the missionary. He's going from town to town. And you show up and say, hey, why don't, we, why don't you put me up in a hotel and start feeding me? I'm going to be sharing this message with you and you'll be coming to Christ soon, hopefully. You support me, and then after you support me, and after you come to Christ, we can get a church planted here, and then you can support me more. No, that wouldn't be good. That, that would be ridiculous. So what Paul did is when he came into a place and he was doing evangelism, what he did is he supported himself, he worked for himself, and once he got a congregation built, then he'd receive support from him. He did it many times in the New Testament. So he chose not to exercise that liberty. Now look down at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21. And notice what Paul says here. He explains how he uses liberty to evangelize a loss and look at what he says in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. He's talking about evangelism strategy here. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So that I might win those who are without law. Did you see that? Under the law of Christ. What does under mean? Under the responsibility, obligation to obey the commands contained in a law system. And this one's called the law of Christ. But this text becomes much easier to understand when you understand these words law. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them out. So you can understand a little bit better what they're saying. Look at verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew that, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law of Moses is under the law of Moses, though not being myself under the law of Moses. So that I might win those who are under the law of Moses. To those who are without the law of Moses as without the law of Moses, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That makes it clear. All he's saying is this, when I went to go to witness the Jews, I knew that they ate kosher, I knew they had these regulations and things they did, I used to be one, practicing Jew under the law of Moses. And so he said, I wouldn't do anything that would offend them, I was trying to witness to them, so that's what I did. Now, when I went to those who were without the law, Gentiles, who were not under the law, they didn't even have the law of Moses, I acted as one who was not under the law of Moses. I didn't say, well, I'm not going to eat any of your you know, Gentile food. I'm not coming into your Gentile house. I'm not stepping foot in your Gentile city. That would be a real hindrance if you're supposed to be called to the Gentiles. You won't even step in their, their turf. So he lives like one who is not even under the law of Moses yet. While witnessing to these people who are not under the law of Moses, he himself, though not under the law of Moses, lived under the law of God, the law of Christ. 
That's what he says there. He was not an antinomian, an anti-law person. The New Testament does not teach we are not under law. It teaches we are not under the law of Moses. Now the phrase law of God here, when he says, though not being without the law of God, is a general term. It means any laws given by God, and the context depends what it means. For instance, in Romans 7 and 8, it's used of the law of Moses. Here it's used of the law of Christ. It's a general term. Now turn over to Galatians 6.2. We'll see this term used again, the term law of Christ. Remember, the book of Galatians is, you, is refuting the Judaizers, those who said you were saved by grace and then kept by works. In other words, yeah, you get saved by grace by believing in Christ, you become a Christian, then you have to keep the law of Moses. Put yourself under the law of Moses. He says, no, that's not true. So the whole book, Paul is arguing against that. He explains how it is a false gospel to say that we are under the law of Moses and saved by works. But some were accusing Paul of teaching lawlessness and antinomianism because some of these Jews who he was dialoguing with were thinking, well, if we're not under the law of Moses and that's the only law system we know that God's given, then you must be teaching we can just live lawless lives of sin and rebellion. And Paul says, no, that's not true either. And so what he says, look in Galatians 5.13 first. 5.13. Notice what he says here. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice here that Paul says basically the same thing Jesus said about the Old Testament law system. Love is always the essence of the law. Love is self-sacrificing service towards other people unconditionally for their good. And if you're doing that, you're going to be fulfilling all the statements in the New Testament about you and other people. That's why it's a fulfillment of the law. What law? Any law, all of God's laws are founded upon that principle, the law of love. Then in verses 16 through 26, Paul explains how the Holy Spirit helps us to do this. Fulfill the law by loving, by walking in the Spirit, relying on His power, and not walking in the flesh. Then look at Galatians 6, verse 1. So, he says, what I want you to do is is even though you are free from the law of Moses, do not turn your freedom from the law of Moses in an opportunity to be fleshly, that is sin, act lawlessness, act like a lawless person, but use your freedom from the law of Moses to serve one another because love is the fulfillment of the law. This is how you do it. Walk by the Spirit. And this is how you do it in relationship to other people. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now notice here, he says... 
First you get your act together. That's what it means to be spiritual, walk in the spirit. And then if you see other people who are entangled in sins, go to them and help them walk in the spirit because that's what love does. Love helps other people walk in obedience to God. He says, first, look to your own self. This is exactly the same thing Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 1, wasn't it? You know, people know this verse, judge not lest you be judged, but they never know what comes after. Judge not lest you be judged, then goes on to say, listen, before you go take the speck out of your brother's eye, take that huge rough cut beam out of your own eye. Because you cannot see to take the speck out of your brother's eye if you have a huge log or beam in your own eye. So first, deal with your own sin before you deal with the sins of others. Now, when he says before taking the speck out of your brother's, deal with that, he's comparing that to judging. Judge not hypocritically, lest you be judged. First... Judge yourself before you judge other people. Jesus is not saying, don't ever judge. He's saying, don't judge hypocritically. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look to yourself first. Then after you look to yourself, then what I want you to do is help that person walk in the Spirit, as I have told you to walk in the Spirit in the preceding context. You bear one another's burdens, and you fulfill, and here's the term, the law of Christ. The law of Christ, which is to love other people. Now, all the law of God is based off of those two commands, to love God and love your neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. That self-sacrificing love that people do towards one another for the glory of God. To do what is best for them according to God's word. That's what love is. Now, we're out of time this morning, but next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the law of liberty. We're going to look at the royal law. And we're going to look at the new commandment. And then we will have this law business wrapped up, hopefully. But remember, as you leave here today, that through faith in Christ, you get to participate in the new covenant, and you need to praise God for that. Remember, as you leave here today, that living under grace does not mean doing what you want. It means doing everything God wants you to do by relying on the resources he has given you. And you need to praise God for his enablement. And remember as you leave here today that Christ died on the cross to redeem you from the curse of the law. And even if you don't rely on God's resources and you do fall into sin, there is forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness in Christ. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, which not only saves us, but sanctifies us. We thank you for all the resources we have in Christ, which enable us to obey you in every way and live by the law of Christ. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for being so kind to us. Help us to use your resources for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.